I'm Dave DeWitt. This is Tested from WUNC, a daily look at how North Carolina is dealing with COVID-19 and what we're learning about ourselves in the face of a global crisis. Today, models. It's hard to know what exactly to expect here. Is North Carolina going to be like New York or New Orleans? Will we see our hospitals overrun? Or might we get to where the Bay Area is? Early and decisive actions seem to have made a difference there. As of now, hospitals are not overrun and the curve might just be flattening. And we believe very strongly the stay-at-home order uh, has uh, helped advance our efforts in reducing uh, the stress on the system that we believe would have already materialized in more acute ways had we not advanced those protocols when we did. That's Gavin Newsom, governor of California. Our own governor, Roy Cooper, enacted similar measures, but later. Of course, as far as we know right now, the outbreak took hold in North Carolina later. Will it be enough? We're still a couple weeks from finding out. What we do know is getting a little more clear. The North Carolina Department of Health and Human Services is starting to release some new data. It shows, for example, that about one quarter of the 3,200 ICU beds in the state are open and 204 COVID-19 patients are hospitalized. Does this new data help us understand or even predict how the outbreak will play out here? Let's start there with Rose Hoban. She's the editor of North Carolina Health News. First of all, I was really happy to see the data appear, you know, um, because one of my oldest friends works in public health in Louisiana, and I've been tracking what they've been doing in that state, and their data transparency has been amazing. Um, And these numbers do go a long way toward contextualizing the numbers, as you and I have talked about. Um, If there's anything that caught my eye, it was actually the equipment we needed and have requested and how it doesn't match up with what we've needed, right? Like what we got didn't match up with what we need. So the biggest thing we've gotten is about a half million procedure masks. Those are those cloth or dense paper masks that a lot of people like wear out on the street. And for healthcare workers, they're good for protecting your face from a splatter, but they won't keep you from breathing in coronavirus because they're not airtight. Like only the N95 masks make an airtight seal around your mouth hmm. and nose to keep you from breathing in anything that's aerosolized. And you know, speaking of aerosolized, you know, the thought is that the virus is not transmitted through the quote unquote airborne route. However, if, for example, you're managing someone on a ventilator and that person coughs, or if you're in the process of intubating somebody, that's an occasion where they'll cough and those droplets are airborne for a short period of time that we're not really clear on. And it doesn't matter sort of how long those droplets are airborne, because if you're a healthcare worker doing this kind of work, you're like a foot or 18 inches from someone's face. So if someone coughs, you're breathing it in, unless you've got on an N95. So they gave us these masks that don't really, you know, that that really aren't the key thing that we need. Um, Another number that jumped out to me is 77. And that's the number of people who are hospitalized in the Charlotte area. And so I I was thinking, well, it's a good thing they have a couple big health systems in that part of the state because it's been pretty hard hit. On the other hand, In the eastern part of the state, there are 53 people hospitalized, and there are not a lot of big health systems. There's one big health system out there, Vidant, which has a footprint in, I think it's like 21 eastern counties, but they just had to lay off about 190 people last month. So 
So outbreaks are uneven across the state, as you just mentioned. They're also uneven across the country, and that's affected by all sorts of factors. There's some frightening situations like New York, New Orleans, but there's also places like the Bay Area in California, an area you know well, which instituted an early lockdown order and has seen some positive results from it. Is there a state or a city out there that you think could be a model for what might happen here based on the population and when mitigation efforts began? Indeed. I do know the Bay Area well. That's where I went to graduate school. Mm -hmm. So you're right. Early reports there are that the rate of hospitalization is slowing down, which would be great. Um, I think it's a great place to look. They implemented social distancing measures early and a shelter-in-place order early. And two weeks later, hospital officials there are saying that, you know, they're still getting cases, but the expected overwhelming hasn't materialized. And it's given them more time to plan and be ready for subsequent surges. I'm hoping that that's what's going to happen here. You know, I'm watching the hospitalization rate tick up. Um, You know, I've been sort of trying to, there's a bunch of ways, um, mechanisms to plot curves. There's There's a curve generator on the Kaiser Family Foundation website. So I'm trying to compare our curve with other states' curves and when does our curve go up. I'm really, our, our curve seems to be a little flatter than some places, but Mm. we also kind of got cases later. So maybe we're just earlier in the acceleration phase. So I'm I'm hoping that we're going to be more like the Bay Area than New York. Just looking at Florida, that looks like it could be a scary situation. Oh, my God. Like when I look at a place like Florida, I am super worried. Florida's demographics show that fully 21% of their population, or 4.4 million people, are over the age of 65. Um, So the data from Louisiana fall in line with what we've seen from China, and that's that about 15, 1.5% of people over the age of 70 who got the disease and died. Um, There's also some new numbers out from the Centers for... um, Uh, Disease Control and Prevention in their weekly report, the Morbidity and Mortality Weekly Report, that show that if you're older and have one or more pre-existing conditions, you're at a high risk for hospitalization, for being intubated, and for dying. It's bad, particularly for people with diabetes and heart disease. In the sample they looked at, about a quarter of patients with either of those conditions were hospitalized. It may have been some of those patients may have had both. Um, because the way they presented the numbers, it wasn't completely clear. And of the ICU admissions they looked at, just under a third of folks in their study sample who ended up in the ICU were people with diabetes or heart disease or both. And folks with those conditions, surprisingly, actually did worse than people with chronic lung disease, Hmm. which I thought was super interesting. And finally, it feels like I ask you this question every time we talk, but what do you know or what have you heard about how our healthcare personnel are faring? So I'm talking to people this week about just that, and I'll have a story soon. But I think a lot of folks immediately think doctors and nurses when they think about healthcare personnel. But I would like to highlight some of the unsung heroes of the healthcare system, namely janitorial staff. Mm-hmm. You know, I spoke to someone this morning who told me that in their community health center, that first they had the janitorial staff wipe down every chair in their clinic after patients came in and were waiting. Then they took out all the chairs in the waiting room, and when the patients come in, they're showing them directly back into an exam room to wait there. She said their janitorial staff are having to do a lot more work and a lot more heavy work that entails moving chairs around, disinfecting, disinfecting, disinfecting. And she said that at least one of them seemed really a lot more stressed out. Mm. 
So, you know, and I, I remember when I worked in the emergency department, um, we had a, a cadre of janitorial staff who were constantly coming around behind us, squirting and wiping and mopping and spritzing and, you know, and making sure that the place stayed clean. Um, it's really important work that they do. They don't get thought of as being, uh, you know, an integral part of the healthcare system, but they are. Right. Um, and they probably don't get as much PPE. Rose Hoban is the editor of NorthCarolinaHealthNews.org. Hang tight. More in a moment. Hi there. My name is Celeste Gracia, and I work with Dave at WUNC North Carolina Public Radio, which produces this podcast. And this is a good time to say thank you to everyone who supports WUNC. Whether you are an individual donor or a business, we can't say thank you enough for providing us with the resources and opportunity to serve the state of North Carolina with up-to-the-minute news and information. Everyone at WUNC is working around the clock to do just that at this unique and perilous moment in our history. And we couldn't do it without your help. So thank you. And if you are able, please go to wunc.org if you want to donate for the first time or to increase your support. Duke Energy is the state's largest electric utility. Several weeks ago, the company announced it would not cut off service to anyone for non-payment during the pandemic. Jeff Brooks is a Duke Energy spokesman. You know, now more than ever, our communities and our customers are relying on us to provide reliable energy. Uh, and we're doing that across every community that we serve. Um, as a provider of this essential service, we're going to continue working hard to deliver uh, this reliable power that helps uh, our customers as they're living and working at home every day, all day, to be able to do the things that they do and to have uh, the normal things in their lives. And that is, that is important at a time like this. Whatever you think of Duke Energy as a company... Pledging not to cut off power to any customer right now was an admirable and early step. Yesterday, Governor Roy Cooper made it an executive order. No utility could legally cut off service for non-payment due to the unprecedented economic upheaval. But before he could make it an order, Halifax Electric Membership Corporation had already done so to at least one customer. Halifax is the state's smallest electric co-op. They serve customers in northeast North Carolina, some of the poorest areas of the state. According to the Huffington Post, the company very recently cut off the power to an elderly couple, the Hayslips, in Warren County. Both of them are stroke victims who depend on oxygen machines and nebulizers to breathe. Their daughter reportedly pleaded with the company for some relief, specifically because of the pandemic. WUNC reached out to Halifax Electric Membership Corporation to see if they were turning the Hayslips' power back on in the wake of Cooper's order. Just as we were putting the final touches on this episode, Halifax responded via email and said they had restored power to the Hayslip's residence. That's it for this episode of Tested. I'm Dave DeWitt. Lindsay Foster Thomas is our executive producer. Brent Wolf is WUNC's news director. Thanks for listening. See you tomorrow. <laughs>